Jesus is the true king of the north, and I will demonstrate from our text in Daniel chapter 11 more reasons why I think this is the proper interpretation of verses 40 through 45. All right, we're live streaming to YouTube and also to Sermon Audio. These live YouTube lessons occur on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time, and I also air Bible studies and sermons that I've done on Final Fight Bible Radio at 9 o'clock a.m. and p.m. on Fridays, 9 o'clock a.m. and p.m. Mountain Time. There's also a live broadcast on Fridays on Final Fight Bible Radio at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. If you enjoy this content, please subscribe, and if you're interested in more in-depth study of this subject and others, uh, there are four books that I've written that are available through Final Fight Bible Radio, Amazon, uh, Kindle, and also the Google uh, ebook store. And also, uh, thank you for those of you that support the ministry of Final Fight Bible Radio and these Bible studies. I greatly appreciate it. All right, so let's go ahead and get into our text today. We Last week, I began introducing an alternative Bible-believing interpretation of Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 through 45. And this uh, interpretation, there we go, this interpretation is uh, presenting, that I'm, that I'm presenting, still takes the text literally, but rather than the king of the south being some unknown, unnamed, random king that opposes the Antichrist in the last days of the tribulation, this interpretation makes it so that the king of the south is the Antichrist, the king of the north is Jesus Christ, and I'm going to interpret verses 40 through 45 in light of the second advent, all right? And I may not be right about this theory, or perhaps I am right, but maybe I'm going to be off in some of the details. But the most important thing that I've tried to express that I think all of us Bible believers would agree with, at least intellectually, is that any interpretation of prophecy has to be able to be backed up by other scriptures throughout the Bible. If you can't back up a theory with other scriptures throughout the Bible, then what you're dealing with more than likely is going to be a private interpretation. And private interpretations are incorrect, okay? So since there isn't any other scripture to pop to back up the other popular Bible-believing interpretation, at least not that any has put forward, I personally am comfortable and okay with trying on a different theory to see if it fits a little bit better. So let's see if this Jesus equals the king of the north theory fits for verses 40 through 45 or not. All right, so we're in verse 40. The Bible says in Daniel 11, verse 40, And at the time of the end, uh, that would be the end of the great tribulation period, shall the, uh, as I pointed out last week, shall the king of the south, the Antichrist, specifically the son of perdition, push or militarily attack at him. Who's the him? Well, the verse goes on to say, and the king of the north. So we know that the him is referring to the king of the north, okay? So the king and the king of the north, Jesus, shall come against him, the Antichrist, the son of perdition. So if this is correct, and you have the king of the south and the king of the north coming at each other, and it's the king of the south, Antichrist, king of the north, Jesus Christ, then what we're dealing with is the battle of Armageddon, the second advent. All right, they're both coming at each other, and on the Antichrist's side are the armies of the nations of the world because he runs his totalitarian new world order during the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. The ten kings gave their power to the beast, so the beast has power over all the armies of the nations of the world, and he also has the ten and fallen angel kings with him. All right, so Revelation 19.18 says that among the ones that are going to be destroyed by Jesus Christ at the second advent, 
at the Battle of Armageddon will be kings, captains, mighty men, horsemen, and other men, small and great. All right. Now, I'm going to have a lot of verses in this uh, particular lesson that pertain to the Second Advent, so there's not going to be time. I'm not going to be able to leave a lot of time for people to flip to the verses, but if you want to go back and pause it or write down these verses, that's fine. I'm going to read a lot of the verses just so we can not take too much time on this morning lesson. I like to try to keep it moving. All right, Revelation 17, 14, it's the context of the ten fallen angel kings, and it says, These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Zechariah 14.2 says that the Lord will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle at the end of the tribulation period. And it says in Zechariah 14.3, Then shall the Lord go forth personally and fight against those nations that are coming against Jerusalem. And then it says, as when he fought in the day of battle. All right, Zephaniah 3.8 says, Wait, therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms. All right, we a lot of times apply that to the United Nations in, in uh, New York City, and that's one application, but technically the exact doctrinal Direct application of that verse is referring to the gathering of the nations against Jerusalem in the at the end of the Great Tribulation. All right, so he says he'll gather the nations, assemble the kingdoms. Why? To pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. All right, so seeing as how the Antichrist is going to be king over all the nations... The armies of the nations are going to be at his disposal and will be assembled together there in the Middle East uh, to fight against Jesus Christ, uh, specifically in that valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, uh, uh, hill of Megiddo area. All right. So back to verse 40, it says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, Jesus, and the king of the north, Jesus, shall come against him, the Antichrist, like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen, and with many ships, okay? So, in this interpretation that I'm presenting here, Jesus' second advent, if, if I'm correct, and the king of the north is Jesus, then Jesus' second advent would be described as a whirlwind. Now, is there anywhere else in Scripture to support the idea of Jesus' second advent being likened to a whirlwind? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> and as one uh, listener pointed out to me, just yesterday, most of the references to the word whirlwind in your King James Bible pertain to Jesus at his second advent, interestingly enough. In Job chapter 38, verse 1, at the end of Job's great tribulation, if you will, uh, God himself appears and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. So you have this type in the book of Job where you have this tribulation that's lasting, and then at the end, God appears, and how does he appear? He appears in a whirlwind. Interesting. Psalms 58 verse 9 is the context of the second advent. And it says, Before your pots can feel the thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, both living and in his wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. That's the vengeance of God on, on his enemies at the second advent. He, the righteous, shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. 
That's Psalms 58, verse 10. All right, Isaiah 17, verse 12. How about this? It says, Woe to the multitude of many people, which shall make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them, and they shall flee far off, and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind, and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. All right? Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 23 says this, Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he have done it and until he have performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days ye shall consider it. So there's a lot more verses that associate the second advent with a whirlwind. Okay, those two concepts go together, but you get the point. And I'll, if you get a concordance, look up the word whirlwind. I think like nine out of ten verses, eight out of ten verses pertain to uh, the second advent. All right? So... I don't think I'm too far off in suggesting that maybe Daniel 11 verse 40 in reference to a whirlwind might have something to do with the second advent. All right. The verse also said that he comes with chariots, whoops, wrong one, that he comes with a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen. All right. So the Lord has an army when he returns at the second advent. And like any army, his army has soldiers that are on foot. And he also has others who are on various means of transportation, evidently. All right. So Jesus' soldiers are going to be angels. He is the Lord of hosts, all right? the captain right, of hosts and uh, the captain of the hosts of the Lord. And so he's obviously got angels. Jesus uh, told Pilate that, you know, hey, I could call 12 legions of angels right now to help me if I wanted to. Uh, Jude verse 1 verse 14 says, Behold, the Lord cometh at the second advent with Ten thousands of his saints. To, to Why? To execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So he's coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon the ungodly. This is all in reference to the second advent, the battle of Armageddon, the day of the Lord that happens at the end of the three and a half year Great Tribulation period. Just as Jesus showed up and was born 2,000 years ago, so Jesus is going to return physically and visibly at the end of the Great Tribulation period. This is not some spiritual uh, uh, spiritual thing that there is no Jesus, but it's just this awakening that takes place among the nation. No, it's not like that. Jesus literally returns and rules and reigns on planet Earth as king in Jerusalem, and rules the world just as the Antichrist ruled the world for this three and a half years. A centralized king ruling over the nations of the world. All right? With all the nations under him. Okay, so the Lord is evidently also going to utilize methods of transportation at this time, which are depicted along the lines of horses and chariots. Now, I say along the lines of because there's something weird, there's something odd, about God's horses and God's chariots. Um, Psalms 104 verse 3 says, Who layeth the beams, speaking of the Lord, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot. So God has a chariot. Who walketh upon the wings of the wind. 
In Isaiah 19, verse 1, the Lord is said to ride upon a swift cloud, like a chariot, like unto a cloud. Isaiah 66, verse 15 says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebukes with flame, uh, flames of fire. All right, Psalm 68, verse 17 says, The chariots of God are 20,000. Now that's interesting. If he has 20,000 chariots, then he has to have riders for those chariots, and he has to have animals pulling those chariots, you would presume. All right, so he has chariots, and he has 20,000 of them, according to Psalm 68, verse 17. Then he says, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Habakkuk 3.8, in the context of the second advent, says, Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thy horses and thy chariots of salvation? Okay. So there is something that I want to point out here, and I tread lightly with this. Okay. So hear me out. But I, I'm only spe speculating here, and I'm going to be thinking out loud a little bit, but I can't help but wonder a little bit about these heavenly horses. All right. I don't have a problem with literal horses up in heaven that Jesus, is, that Jesus and his army rides down to the earth of the second advent. I don't have a problem with God having some kind of heavenly stable, all right? I, no big deal, okay? However, there are a few things in the scriptures that make me wonder if these horses are indeed literal or if the term horses is simply the most universally recognized term to depict a transportation unit that might be impossible to describe. Okay, now hang in there. I know some of you are like, well, I don't know about that. Just hold on and let me explain and show you from the Bible why there's something weird about these horses. Now, as I said, you know me, okay, I'm, I'm not one to allegorize scripture and to just throw out random allegories. I'm, you, you know me, I'm not that way. As I've said, the rule of thumb with Bible interpretation is to take a text literally, unless it is impossible to do so, or if the Bible indicates otherwise, okay? And it's possible that in this instance, when it comes to these horses, the Bible might be indicating that they're not necessarily literal horses, okay? So, as a matter of fact... Uh, God's horses are strange horses, as we find in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. This story of Eli Elisha, remember it says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, his servant's eyes, that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots. But these are horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So the horses are fire, and the chariots are fire. But then again, God's chariots are also associated with clouds. So it said fire, but then it said clouds in another place. Interesting. Chariots, horses, fire, clouds. Hmm. 
All right, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, we're reading about Elijah in Elisha, and Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven. And it says, And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, animals aren't usually on fire, friend. <laughs> but then again, neither are men, and yet the Bible says that the nature of angels, who often appear as men, the nature of angels is that of fire. So Hebrews chapter, or, yeah, Hebrews 1, 7 says, And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay? So these horses that the Bible talks about, these heavenly horses, are obviously spiritual creatures, evidently similar in nature to angels, in that their genetic makeup, if you will, is that of fire. Okay? Also, the speed of these horses is so fast that you recall that Elisha was told to pay close attention and he had to pay close attention to even catch a glimpse of this fiery chariot as it picked up Elijah. You might say they were moving so fast, you might say that they were moving at lightning speed. Chariots, horses, fire, clouds, lightning. Hmm. Now, you know what else is associated with chariots, fire, clouds, and lightning? Well, it would be the cherubim. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13. You read about the cherubim, they're described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Ezekiel chapter 10. And don't have, we don't have time to go into all the details, obviously, of all this, but in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13, it says, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. Verse 14, And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Wow. So here's the Lord's chariot, and his horses, if you will, are the cherubim. Okay? So he has a chariot. It's described like to a chariot, but the animals that carry and transport and pull this thing or whatever are cherubim. Okay? So I can't help but wonder if the word cherubim could be used synonymously with the word horse, seeing as how the cherubim function exactly the same way as a horse would to a chariot. So question, if God ever wanted, let's just say, if God ever wanted to call a cherubim a horse or liken a cherub to a horse, would God be incorrect in doing so? Hmm, makes you wonder. Now, we're not given many details regarding the actual appearance of the fiery horses when they show up in Scripture. But we're only told some things in regards to their capabilities. But we are given details regarding the appearance of the cherubim. And all of the capabilities of the cherubim do indeed match perfectly with the capabilities of the fiery horses. Hmm. 
Now, how bright do you think these fiery creatures are? Now, when we think of fire, we tend to think of the orange glow of a campfire. But that's a low-level fire with low-intensity heat and low-intensity light. A high-level, ultra-intense fire, like lightning, is brilliant white, right? How hot do you think the fire of heaven is? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 says that God makes his, his, his angels as a flame of fire, but when you read of them, when you read of the angels, they're often described in terms of being white, like the sun, and appearing as lightning. Okay? So it's not the color orange that you pick up when you're reading about these angels. You're, you're reading more along the terms of the color white. This fire is so bright, so hot, it's likened to white. Okay? Okay, so keep that in mind. So when we read of these heavenly beings, when we read of these heavenly creatures, we ought to think along these lines. Just as physical beings are associated with dust, heavenly beings are associated with fire. And fire has to do with the color white, more often than not in the Bible, and is an appearance along the lines of lightning. And there's even a few places in the Bible where fire, the word fire and lightning, are used interchangeably. And the color white has to do with intense fire. Now here's another thing. In multiple Old Testament passages, the Lord is seen riding upon his, quote, chariot of the cherubims, as we read in 1 Chronicles 28, 18. And these passages, referring to the Lord's chariot of the cherubims, is usually in a second advent context. Go ahead and look at Psalms chapter 18. Here's one I'll have you turn to. Psalms chapter 18, okay? Psalms chapter 18. Got to get there. All right, Psalms 18 is a major second advent text. And in Psalms chapter 18, verse 7, look at what it says. Then the earth shook and trembled. Okay, second advent, the context. The foundations also of the hills were moved and were shaken because he was wroth. The Lord was angry. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down, and darkness was under his feet. It has to do with the clouds, and the storm, and this tempest that he comes with, and all this stuff. Anyway, he says, And he rode upon a cherub, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Now, hold on just a second. David. I thought that John, the Apostle John, said that Jesus rides a white horse at the second advent. But here in Psalms 18, David is prophesying of the second advent and says that the Lord rides upon a cherub and flies. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, interestingly enough, nowhere else in the Bible do you find the Lord riding bareback on a horse. You only have that in Revelation chapter 19, and maybe one other time in Zechariah chapter 1, but that is a very cryptic passage anyway. So everywhere else, when you're reading about the second advent and the Lord coming back, 
the Lord is riding on his mobile throne, his supernatural chariot that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 1 and is mentioned in Psalms chapter 18. So you have the what I'll call the cherubim mobile, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and then in Revelation chapter 19, you have Jesus riding on a white horse. Okay. Now, we have a little bit of a problem that we need to reconcile, and there is a reason why I'm going into this detail uh, in terms of Daniel chapter 11. There's a reason, but uh, we need to reconcile real quick whether Jesus rides a white horse or whether he's riding the cherubim mobile at the second advent. If it's both, then that would require at some point he's riding on one, hops off, and then rides on the other. And that's fine if that's what happens. I don't have a problem with that. But seeing as how the Lord describes, or the Bible describes the Lord riding on clouds, a chariot, cherubim, a mobile throne, and a white horse. Okay, All of those things the Bible talks about the Lord riding on at his return. So I can't help but wonder if maybe all of these are aspects of the same thing or descriptions that pertain to the same vehicle, for lack of a better term. That is, what if the white horse of Revelation chapter 19 is the cherubim chariot? Let's think about it. This would reconcile... Revelation 19 with Psalms 18, Ezekiel 1, and Ezekiel 10, and so on. But it would require that the white horse is not a literal flying horse, but is rather a metaphor of sorts to describe the white, fiery, flying creature that is transporting the vehicle that Jesus is sitting or riding upon at the second advent. Now listen, I'm not at all interested in ignoring what Revelation 19 says. But listen... Ladies and gentlemen, I'm also not interested in ignoring what Psalms 18.10 and Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 says either. Okay? So you so don't just call me like, a, oh, he's rejecting the Bible. He's rejecting Revelation 19, but then you don't address how you reject these. Okay? Let's be consistent. Let's think about these things. All I'm trying to do is I'm trying to simply reconcile what appears to be a contradiction. So... I'm simply wondering if perhaps we ought to interpret the white horse of Revelation 19 in light of the other scriptures. That is, one, the white horse is white because it's fire. It's a fire horse. Number two, it's white because it's also associated with lightning and moves that fast. Three, Jesus throughout the Old Testament rides a vehicle that is pulled or is carried by the cherubim, like a chariot, like a chariot. Number four, the cherubim are also white, or at least burning and glowing and bright like fire. Okay, They move like lightning, and they are in unison. They move in unison, the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 1, and they're one in every movement. Okay, So these cherubim, they function as horses to a chariot, but since they operate as one, it may be more accurate to say that they function as a singular horse to a chariot. As in the cherubim are, for all practical purposes, a flying, fiery, white horse that carries the, thr that carries the, 
the, the seat that Jesus sits on, and it moves at lightning speed. So in other words, when you have the white horse described in the Bible, we know that it's white and it's fire. We know that it's connected with fire. It moves at lightning speed. It can fly, and it's a chariot. By the way, this flying white horse is not a unicorn. I know sometimes it's taught that way, but the word unicorn in the Bible is not a flying white horse. And I've done other lessons on that. I did this lesson on Nimrod horns and unicorns, and I described from the Bible what unicorns are. Okay, they're not white flying horses with a horn on their head. That's that's a fan, that's a fantasy unicorn, but that's not a Bible unicorn. All right, so just get that idea out of your head. But anyway, we have the cherubim mobile is also described in terms of white, or at least bright. Then they're described in terms of fire. They move at lightning speed. The cherubim mobile flies, and it's called a chariot. Ezekiel 1, the Lord rides a chariot in multiple places. Okay, So seeing as how all these terms go together, like I said, I'm just simply trying to reconcile these things, and I can either try to allegorize or say that Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and all the detail that's described of this vehicle, well, that's just a metaphor for a white horse, but that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. We're not given a lot of detail as to this white horse. It'd be more safe to say that this is more of a metaphor for this, okay? Or, again, if you want to take both of them completely literal, that's fine, but what you have to have is you have to have the Lord coming back on a white horse and then he evidently jumps on a, maybe on a cloud, or maybe the cloud's under the horse, and then he's got to get onto the cherubim chariot at some point. And that's fine, but it's going to be difficult to put it all together. Okay, So I don't think it's too big of a stretch to, to insinuate that maybe the white horse of Revelation 19 could possibly be just a simplistic nomenclature for what is actually the cherubim mobile described more fully in the Old Testament. Again, that might not be correct. But don't crucify me over it. I'm just trying to reconcile Revelation 19 and Psalms 18. And if you have a better answer, please, by all means, email me or put it in the notes. Okay? Don't be uh, quick to kill and slow to speak. Okay? <laughs> all right? So, furthermore, the Bible also speaks of cherubim and also seraphim. And there's debate as, there's debate as to whether those are the same or different creatures. But I can't help but wonder if those weird cherubim, seraphim, are essentially the animals of heaven. The only animals that you read about in heaven are cherubim, seraphim, and horses. But what if the cherubim and seraphim were the horses of heaven, if you will? Also, what if there are a lot more than just four seraphim? We read about the four around the throne of God, but what if there's more than that? Because the Bible did say the chariots of God are 20,000. We read about one right here, but if he's got 19,999 more, what are those chariots being pulled by? Well, you say horses of fire. I agree. But what if those horses are essentially cherubim or seraphim? Okay. So it's interesting. Uh, perhaps the fiery horses that picked up Elijah were technically seraphim, but because of their function with the chariot, 
is because their function with the chariot is similar to that of horses, that maybe they're just called horses of fire in some references. By the way, interestingly enough, seraphim means burning, glowing, fiery ones. That's what the word seraphim means. And also, by the way, the same Hebrew word used to describe the cherubim-like creatures in Isaiah chapter 6 is the same Hebrew word translated as fiery, flying serpents in Numbers 21, Deuteronomy 8, Isaiah 14, and Isaiah 30. So all I'm saying is I think that there's a little bit more to these spiritual animals than we fully understand. Okay. Now you say, well, what does all this have to do with Daniel chapter 11? Well, admittedly, my king of the north equals Jesus theory has some trouble with this next word in Daniel 11 verse 40. All right, Daniel 11, 40, nope. So he says that Jesus, come, that I'm interpreting this as Jesus coming like a whirlwind with chariots, okay, fine, and with horsemen, okay, fine. But then it says this, and with many ships, with many ships. Now, <laughs> that's a little bit of a kink in the hose, okay? As I said, I was going to be honest uh, with where my theory has problems, and I'll try to be as transparent as possible here. And here is one of the problems with my theory. If this king of the north is Jesus at the second advent, then what in the world are these ships that he comes back with? There aren't any second advent verses that directly state that the Lord's army has ships. So I admit that's going to be a bit of a strike against my theory. All right. But let's at least ask the question, can heavenly vehicles that fly through the air be called ships? Maybe. And it might be a stretch, but there are at least two verses that make you wonder. Look at Psalms chapter 104. Psalms 104. And look at what it says here. There's an interesting couple of words thrown in here. <laughs> Psalms 104, verse 25. It says, So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. Okay? So he's talking about the earth's seas, no problem. But then he says this. There's kind of a weird thing that he follows up with. And he says in verse 26, there go the ships. There is that, what? Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. Now, if the Leviathan there is simply a whale, then that works. And everything there has to do with the Earth's oceans and ships and the Leviathan's a whale. But the mention of a Leviathan there in the verse is peculiar because Leviathan clearly has a connection to the devil in Job 41, who is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. So if there is a possibility, let's say, of a dual application here in this verse, and this Leviathan in the spiritual realm, and the dual application is also a spiritual creature of the air, then it makes you wonder about these ships. Could these ships also have a dual application in the verse? And would they be some kind of spiritual vehicle that flies through the air? And it certainly makes you wonder about UFOs. And seeing as how Satan counterfeits everything that God does after God does it, could we therefore speculate that UFOs are a satanic counterfeit of a vehicle that God has of some sort? 
we know UFOs are, are satanic and demonic in, in nature. I, I believe in UFOs, okay? They're demonic, spiritual things in the fourth dimension. But anyway, if Satan has those, then it stands to reason that that is a counterfeit of something that God has. And, and uh, so if Satan has uh, vehicle-like things, does that mean that God has vehicle-like things also? Makes you wonder. Here's another verse that you ought to take a look at. Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Now, like I said, that verse in Psalms is not conclusive, but it makes you wonder. Job chapter 9, verse 25, he says, Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away, they see no good. They, they, my days, he says, are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. And notice that there's a colon there after swift ships. Not a, not a semicolon, but a colon. Now, maybe there's nothing there. But Job associates ships with flying eagles. He connects those two terms together. And eagles are certainly swift, but are ships swift? Maybe. But ships are not as swift as eagles are swift <laughs> so it begs the question i can't help but wonder what kind of ship exactly is job talking about is this a ship on water or has job in his lifetime at some point seen some other kind of vehicle flying through the air up where the eagles are in the air moving faster actually than the eagles and Job doesn't have any other word to describe this flying thing that moves with the eagles and faster than the eagles other than the word swift ship. It makes you wonder. So I will acknowledge that the ships in Daniel chapter 11 verse 40 are problematic to my theory. Maybe it's not a big problem, especially since we're talking about the second advent and spiritual vehicles and spiritual creatures that defy explanation and are at the edge of our imagination, okay? Even no matter how many times you read Ezekiel 1 and 10, it's really hard to mentally imagine what this thing even looks like, much less try to draw it on paper. Okay, so could heavenly vehicles that fly through the air at the second advent be called ships? If that's correct, I don't have a problem with that. The Bible does liken the heavens to a sea, and the Bible does associate the clouds in the sky with deep waters, and even in our modern subconscious, we regard rockets as spaceships, and we refer to the outer universe as the depths of outer space. That's a water term. And we call those who venture into space astronauts, from the Latin nauticus, which means pertaining to, the sh pertaining to ships or pertaining to sailors, an astronaut. So, granted, my theory requires Jesus' second advent army to have ships. Uh, and I would have to interpret that, those ships there in Daniel 11 verse 40, as the strange flying spiritual vehicles that transport Jesus' army through the heavens at his return, basically uh, synonymous with the 20,000 uh, chariots of God. Okay? I don't personally think that's a deal breaker necessarily that overthrows my theory, but I will admit that it is a point of friction. Okay, so let's wrap up and take a look at this, and uh, we'll 
wrap up for today. It says, And at the time of the end, the end of this great tribulation, shall the king of the south, the Antichrist, push at him, Jesus, and the king of the north, Jesus, shall come against him, the Antichrist, like a whirlwind, a tempestuous army, second advent, with supernatural chariots, their spiritual chariots, essentially, as we've looked at, and with horsemen, which are going to be the uh, angels and the saints that he comes back with, and with many ships, okay? Now, maybe it's the seraphim mobiles, the seraphim chariots. I'm not exactly sure. That's what my, my theory would require, because I don't know of any other ship that Jesus has mentioned in the Bible. And, shall, and the army, basically, shall overflow and pass over, all right? So we'll stop here for today, but this uh, next thing about overflowing and passing over, and this next verse gets into the path of Jesus, at, of, of the route of Jesus at the second advent. So I realize that uh, not everything today was as clean and as uh, clear and as clean cut as one would prefer, but I still tend to think that this second advent interpretation of verses 40 through 45 has some merit to it, and I will show you more of it that seems to fit very well next week. So I hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you learned something, share the video with someone else who might appreciate the information put out today. God's grace be with you, and have a good week.